Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks. This is your host, Danielle. This is episode number 13. In this episode, Brian speaks with award-winning documentarian, Ken Burns, who has directed and produced some of the most acclaimed historical documentaries ever made. Before we get to the conversation, we would like to ask for your help to grow our audience by telling your friends, subscribing, and leaving a review. Also, we love creating each episode, but it takes significant time and effort. Please consider supporting our work through Patreon, which provides a way for listeners to support the show. Just go to our website, everybodysnationalparks.com, and click on Support the Show. Thank you for listening. Now to the conversation with Ken Burns. Okay, here we are. We have a very special treat here on Everybody's National Park. Danielle and I have the honor, privilege, and joy to sit down with Ken Burns, 10 years on, to reflect on his series that came out in 2009, The National Parks, America's Best Idea. Ken, welcome to Everybody's National Parks. Thank you, Brian. It's great to be with you. Well, this is really exciting for us. And, you know, here we are 10 years on, and we, we know you're in the middle of myriad projects, so we appreciate your taking the time out. But we want to talk a little bit about the national parks, and hopefully we can put you back in that mindset when you were making those back in the last decade. You know, one thing, and I think this is even relevant to 2019, and I want to make things as relevant to 2019 as they were when this was finished for you in 2009. When we were uh, reviewing this once again, your series, you know, the through line for us was citizen action. Of course, right. you told the story about the political process and great political figures like both Presidents Roosevelt's and Presidents Johnson's and Carter. But uh, you kept going back to stories about citizens like uh, Minerva Hoyt, Joshua Tree, Virginia McClurg from Mesa Verde, Mar- uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas for Everglades, and of course, the giant himself, John Muir. Can you talk a little bit about the citizen action? Were you surprised that the citizens had as much to do as the political process itself? Well, first of all, yes. We don't make films about stuff we know. We make films about stuff we want to know. And inevitably, we learn very quickly that the things that we think we know are rather superficial or conventional, certainly don't serve a narrative. And we knew going in that we didn't want this to be, as people presuppose when you've got a story called The National Park, that it's a kind of travelogue, a nature film, uh, recommendations of where your family should stay when they're on vacation. Um, Rather, we were interested in how this uniquely American phenomenon happened. And what was so great is that it was the merger of both top-down, as you suggest, political influence and action, but more importantly, it was bottom-up individual commitment and passion and dedication and sacrifice on the part of people everywhere a park is to sort of call attention to it, raise their hand and say, wait, 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 we can't let this go to be destroyed. Because once you lose an area, you never get it back. And then, of course, like liberty itself, as we know today, it requires that kind of constant vigilance and action and urgency in the face of all of the fear and worries uh, that we might have. Same is true of the national park. So once you've saved a place, you've got to constantly save it. And so we were bumping into these extraordinary individuals, certainly Theodore and Franklin Roosevelt, uh, Stuart Udall, Secretary of the Interior under Kennedy and Johnson, other sort of well-known people. And John Muir, of course, who is an ordinary person who made himself one of the most important people in American history because of his championship of nature and the possibility of the parks to do the kind of healing that every human being needs in the face of the rest of human behavior. And so we found these uh, very much 
sanctuaries that embodied the best of us, which is why sort of riffing off Wallace Stegner, the subtitle of our film was America's Greatest Idea. It's actually not, Brian. The greatest idea is the articulation of human freedoms as embodied in the second sentence of the Declaration. But once you've set in motion a country with our Constitution, we the people, you'd be hard-pressed to find among the many, many amazing and great things that the United States government has done, in addition to some really classic screw-ups, that the national parks isn't perhaps the best thing. We like to think of it as the Declaration of Independence applied to the landscape. For the first time in human history, land was set aside, not for noblemen or the very rich, but for everybody and for all time. And that was a brand new thing, could only have happened. It's our greatest export. Now there are more than 4,000 national parks in almost every country of the world. And that comes from a democratic impulse. So if you're trusting people to govern themselves, they're going to say, you know what, we share in commonwealth these most spectacular places. And then that idea is not a static idea. It's one that's allowed to grow. So it isn't just big waterfalls and giant trees and majestic mountains. It's about wildlife and species diversification. And then it's about historical things and difficult historical things. And then it's, you know, basically have in the national parks a kind of mirror of who we are and what our interests have been. And, And it's a really great example to riff on and to go on. Well, even in and of itself, you had, and I mentioned a few of them, you had a lot of women leading the charge uh, to establish these parks and preserve the parks. Women who at the time didn't have the franchise and couldn't vote. Did you find that paradox interesting? Do you have any conclusions that you drew from that, that, you know, the women really taking the charge? Abigail Adams at the time of our revolution said, don't forget the ladies, right? Right, right. And of course we did. We also uh, perhaps uh, equally importantly or more importantly forgot the slaves as well and kind of kicked that can down the road and we kicked down women's suffrage. But what is amazing is that throughout the 19th century, women are at the forefront of all the great ideas, not just suffrage, which of course makes true the promises of the declaration, but of course abolition Mm. and, and temperance and other things before it gets sort of strapped by absurdities and political calculations, there was an idea that was smart that people in the 19th century ought to drink a little bit less. The solution was, of course, the only amendment that took away rights rather than all the other amendments, which are either mechanical or are extending and enlarging rights. And of course, it's the only one that's been repealed. But that's another film and another discussion. <laughs> right. Women women are at the forefront. And it was funny, I waited and waited. And I understand completely why in the horrible Parkland aftermath had Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, it's somebody, one reporter would just ask themselves the question, why is it named Marjorie Stoneman Douglas? Right. And to just even as a kind of a side phrase say, you know, chances are we wouldn't have the Everglades without this woman. And, you know, she wasn't even particularly drawn to swamps and alligators and bromeliads and delicate orchids and uh, this diverse ecosystem, you know, possibly the most diverse ecosystem on the planet. But she understood that it had importance for a bigger purpose. She saw beyond herself and her own narrow inclinations and tastes. And that's what citizen engagement is. We don't Mm -hmm. do it for ourselves because we like it. We do it for others because even though they may not know that they like it, 
this will be important to our, as Teddy Roosevelt said, to our children's and our children's children. He says, we are not making this in a day. It is to last through all time, speaking about the Grand Canyon. He wasn't going to let some uranium miners out for a quick and immediate buck ruin the grandest canyon on earth. And he didn't. He exercised first the Antiquities Act given to him by Congress, the greatest gift Congress has ever given to the executive. And he used it and outraged people because they assumed it would just be for tracks like Devil's Tower or Muir Woods uh, just in Marin County. But in fact, it was used for 880, I think, thousand acres of what is now the Grand Canyon, which eventually got voted by both houses of Congress as a full-fledged natural national park. Right. Well, look, what did he say that something along the lines of, you know, nature's already done her part, man can yeah. only mar it, right? So, which, yeah, is, which is powerful. Leave it alone. Leave man it alone. can only mar it, exactly. Which is revolutionary at the time. You know, uh-huh. we're, here in, we're here in New York, but the other end of the state is Niagara Falls, which, of course, yeah. uh, man had just the notion was, let's commercialize this. Let's, let's turn yep. a buck on it and, and see what we can do. And that was a way that ignominiously is how New York was able to kind of lead a charge in a different direction towards uh, that's, that's exactly system, right? right. Well, in two ways, you can sort of reverse things, do a kind of it's a wonderful life or a, you know, Christmas carol. This would be like without you, you know, the access to what's going on. One of them is that sort of crass stuff that we just do where we don't have any national parks, that the Grand Canyon and Zion are gated communities owned by the rich. Maybe there's a little lookout that ordinary people like you and me are allowed to look at it. Uh, the Everglades have been drained and it's mm. now endless shopping malls and condominiums and golf courses that uh, Yellowstone is some tired down on its luck second rate amusement attraction called Geyser World, you know? I mean, that's what it would be. And then let's do the other one, which is not just imagining that sort of dismal story, but think about what the parks actually represent. They come out of an Emersonian idea that it is possible in this new pristine world, uncorrupted by the ancient traditions which are corruptible of Europe, it is possible to find God not in cathedrals made by man, but in cathedrals made by God in Mm. capital N, nature. And so it is only a couple of steps articulated and you know the baton is taken by Henry David Thoreau about wildness and then it's picked up by John Muir that saving these places are essentially saving our national soul both collectively and individually and what you find again and again and again from Stephen Mather the millionaire and uh, businessman who is the champion of the National Park Service that doesn't turn up until 1916 he is literally suffers from massive bipolar depressions or some such thing. We don't obviously have an accurate diagnosis, Mm -hmm. but required institutionalization. But the parks had always been able to calm whatever it was about his nerves that went off. And and everybody, John Muir, you read in their writings the notion, and I think all of us feel that. There's, again, this paradox. Someone once referring to Denali, uh, Mount McKinley, said that it kind of suggests your own, as he put it, atomic insignificance. But then in the paradoxical world of the national parks, that humility in the face of something much bigger than yourself actually inspirits you and makes you bigger, just as the egotist in our midst is diminished by his or her self-regard. So there is this shrinking that takes place among the bloviating, self-important people, 
And there is a kind of quiet dignity that enlarges folks who visit the parks. And this does not have to be, you don't have to go there wishing to write like John Muir. (laughs) That's impossible to begin with. But you can just take your family there and just go and see what that does. When we look back on our lives, particularly as you get to be father of older children or grandfather as I am, you look back and it's hard to really distinguish the day-to-day stuff of one's life, the memories of growing up, they're punctuated by vacations. And more often than not, they're punctuated by vacations to national parks. And it's where people forged the deepest and most sympathetic memories of the rest of their family and then find themselves inexorably bringing their own children or grandchildren. It's a yearly activity of mine. I've got grown children and grandchildren and also a set of young ones. And there's not a year that goes by when we don't visit at least one, if not two or three or five national parks in the course of our conscious attempt to remind us of that atomic insignificance, which at the same time makes us bigger. That's what I was wondering, because as busy as you are, and the fact that you spent, uh, you and, and your partner, Dayton Duncan, spent a lot of time in the parks in the last decade, I wondered if you said, you know, maybe maybe I'm going to take a knee and, and take a break. So I, I want to come back to that. But there's something else. You know, you were talking about these alternative universes. I would say, don't you think there's another, a third alternative universe where, to the other extreme, we realize we need to, we're not going to have Geyserland, but we're going to build a fence around Yellowstone and you can't go there because we want to preserve this, make it pristine. But in fact, these are systems, systems with infrastructures and rangers. And, you know, I want to get to threats a bit because in each of your episodes, all six of them, you talk about threats. And those threats are myriad, sad to say. So you spent time on Hetch Hetchy and the damming of Hetch Hetchy. The elimination of, for example, the wolves. And of course, something Danielle and I spend a lot of time on is the love to death issue. So were you trying to show that the the park idea is transient and that you know we have to take care that the park itself or the park idea may be threatened? Yes. And there you've got to separate that third, this third area of discussion into a lot of different things. There are now national parks that we've created in which you drive up to the edge. There are no visitor center. You pack in and you pack out. And, you know, in Washington state, you know, near the Canadian border, North Glacier is just a wonderful example of a wilderness park in its entirety. In some ways, born out of the idea that whatever respect we have for a place, the putting in of roads and viewpoints and visitor centers and bathrooms and whatever will alter that environment. And so that's one response to that and in a perfectly legitimate one. But we also have to realize, and you're speaking to someone and, and maybe you have had this experience too, of being in a traffic jam in Yellowstone National Park, which is in the northwest corner of Wyoming, one of the least populous states in our union. Mm-hmm. And to be in a traffic jam there is sort of counterintuitive. And I loved it. And, you know, usually I'm a type A guy who wants to lean on the horn. (laughs) The presence of this traffic jam meant that the parks had constituents, people who were using them and people who expected them to be there. And if there were any real legitimate threats by our traditional acquisitive nature, our natural acquisitive nature as human beings to cut down, to look at a beautiful forest and think bored feet and to look at a river and think dam and hydroelectric kilowatts or to look at a canyon and think 
what minerals can be extracted from it. And we've done that and we're doing that with the rest of the continent and a very small percentage is set aside. Mm -hmm. But if there are threats, you need to have people around there and you just got to live with a line to get your, you know, your ice cream cone and things like that. And then you also have to be mindful that we have to maintain the structure of this human interaction. And for a long period of time in the aughts, as we were making the film, there was just unfunded money, money that had been available that wasn't spent on much needed maintenance. And now you can imagine, uh, not just with the government shutdown that brought attention to vandalism and destruction at national parks, particularly at our beloved Joshua Tree, it's also just if you don't spend money on keeping it up, it happens everywhere. Things run down and you end up with a slum. And what you don't want is a slum or allow the, the inholders or the uh, concession people to in somehow dictate the terms of things. You know, the great Awani Hotel is not called that anymore. I know. And it has to do with a contractual glitch that obviously the citizens of the United States represented by the Interior Department employees should have caught, but you now can't call this wonderful hotel. It's the current concessionaire who controls the name, and it's a, it's a travesty. And uh, it may be contractually correct, but it all it does is it robs us of our birthright in the case of, to my mind, the greatest national park on earth. Right, exactly. By the way, we are heading to Yosemite in a few months, and uh, we are still calling it the Awahani. So I don't care what they call it. That's what we're calling it. And maybe that's just Me a too. bit of a plucking the giant in its chest, but uh, yeah. <laughs> that's our little bit of a way to get back. Look, that's I, exactly right. I know how jammed you are. I only have a few more questions. One, I'm very I'm, curious about. I'm happy to answer all of them. Thank um, you, Brian. You know, so you put your camera down and your pen down about 10 years ago. So we've had another, you get this all the time with all of your series as well, but you put your pen down 10 years ago and at the dawn of a new presidential administration and that administration, the Obama administration, broadly speaking, when it thought of park expansion, expanded both underwater, California canyons, Northeast canyons, marine seamounts, and then expanded uh, to tell the civil rights story, Birmingham, Freedom Riders, and of course, uh, Stonewall for gay rights story, you know, as a storyteller, Ken, as, as if you don't mind me saying, as an America's storyteller, what story do you think is next? What story are we not telling that you think the parks can next best tell, in your opinion? Well, you know, I think we've got it. We've covered it. Um, you know, immigration, which is a hot button topic right now, is, of course, represented by Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty. We've also engaged in labor and other th- sorts of things. So I think it's just the main point is that Americans make parks willing to examine stuff that's unpleasant. You know, and that by the time we finish the film, many of them, including civil rights places. I mean, Central High School was already, it's still a working inner city high school in Little Rock, Arkansas. Central High School is also at the same time a National Park Service site. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. So is Shanksville, PA, where the brave passengers of United Flight 93 brought the plane down in a Pennsylvania field, not in the White House or the Capitol, wherever it was headed. I mean, Washita and Sand Creek on the Great Plains, the site of U.S. cavalry massacre of unarmed 
Indian, Native American women and children are both National Park Service sites. So is Manzanar, one of the internment camps of Japanese American Mm -hmm. citizens during the Second World War. We have plantations, but also the slave houses of the people, unpaid workers who made the comfortable life of the slave owner possible. And all of these are part of the system. So I think it's just, you know, Thomas Jefferson said the pursuit of happiness. He could have followed John Locke and said life, liberty, and property. We'd be a different place. But the pursuit of happiness, we've debated. And a lot of people are misinformed and believe that the happiness that Jefferson and the founders meant had to do with material things. They're not. It's not. It's about lifelong learning and expanding your mind. And in that, they're basically all children of the Enlightenment. And they, and they realize how beneficial it is for them to study war and politics so that their kid, John Adams said, can study commerce and industry so that my grandchildren can study art and music. That's the whole purpose of this. And you're, you'll just see that we are a nation in the process of becoming. So we will be constantly expanding. And then I think, think Stonewall is a really good example of what is the, you know, we just need to look on today's headlines and realize that at some point, because Americans are brave and look at themselves clearly, for the most part, we will be constantly changing and constantly evolving this national park idea. And that is such a good thing because when Thomas Jefferson said at the beginning of that sentence, all men are created equal, he meant all white men of property free right. of debt. Right. We don't mean that anymore. So we are always enlarging like ripples in a pond what the definition of who we are is. And the parks, as to me, one of the finest representations of who we are, will reflect that. So not just the majesty, not just the diversification, but also the complicated history from civil war and slavery to civil rights and now gay rights and other heroic things like uh, Washita or Sand Creek or Shanksville. Right. It is fascinating to challenge oneself to think, you know, what story is not being told that could be told later. You know, I thought, you know, in 30 years, you know, of course, you did your series on jazz and Danielle went to the jazz historic site down in New Orleans. I was wondering, you know, is the analog for that in 30 years, I'm going to be in the South Bronx and there's going to be a National Park historic site on the first rap battle. And when, could how, be. by the way, how cool would that be? <laughs> that would be, a matter of fact, let's get that rolling now. Yeah, but yeah, that's that would exactly be exactly right. You know, Historians make lousy prognosticators, so you you can't do it. Who knows? Maybe Trump Tower will be a site of you know of the time where we nearly blew it, right? Yeah, it's indicative of somebody who ended up breaking boulders in Sing Sing that uh, we you know. Whew, Miss that, dodge that bullet, you know, just like the memorial at Pearl Harbor or, you know, the Tenement Museum and, the, you know, these sorts of things. The social critic Lewis Mumford said, rediscover and reexamine those events in the past which give new meaning to our present. So we're constantly trying to find something that's happened before that helps us understand what's going on now. Mm-hmm. I mean, people are fond of saying history doesn't repeat itself, that it, the history repeats itself. It doesn't, you know, it's just that human nature remains the same. And so we struggle in previous examples of human nature to come to terms with our events. And we sort of pick from column A and p- column B and choose that which we want. And I think the national parks in a wonderful, chaotic way represent our growing pains and our growing joys. Yeah, exactly. Well, with, with that. And this leads to our last question with the, again, with Ken Burns, 10 years on the National Parks, America's Best Idea. We ask all of our guests, park rangers, uh, concessionaires, naturalists, we ask them for a park story. I remember, I think it was in the making of, you spoke about 
your memory of holding your dad's hand at Shenandoah, which yeah. really struck me because yeah. my youngest daughter's favorite park is Shenandoah, and I hope she thinks about holding my hand. Do you, again, going back to 10 years on, what story do you well, have Well, we, us? I arrived in, I think, 2003 at Yosemite for the very first time in my life and was gobsmocked as every sentient human being must be by that mm-hmm. view. And then I set to work and we worked really hard. And I had said to my colleagues that this was the first national park that I had been to. I'd been, you know, natural national parks. I'd been to others, uh, battlefields and things like that, working on the Civil War. And then the last night I couldn't sleep. I was exhausted. And I suddenly had this memory, not repressed, but kind of lost of a moment in 1960, uh, 1959, when I was six years old and my mom was dying of cancer and my dad was pretty distracted and our household was a grim and demoralized place that he just one Friday afternoon took me to Baltimore and put me to sleep. And then we went at dawn before dark. I mean, before there was any light to Front Royal and and went down and spent the weekend in Shenandoah National Park. And it all came flooding back so much so that I could remember the jeans jacket that I had. I can remember the clouds that we drove through, driving through clouds, the deer that we scattered with his horn, the time that we spent together, the impossibly long hike of three quarters of a mile and <laughs> to see a, to see a cataract of six feet high to you know turning over a log and seeing a bright orange salamander scamper away I mean uh, and the just what my father's hand felt and that's where my big aha moment came with the national park it was wedded to my story but Yosemite had opened me up had performed a kind of open heart surgery that permitted me to access a memory that was in danger of being completely extinguished by then my dad as well as my mom were gone and right. there would be no one else that would be able to keep that memory alive. But it's not about me. It's the fact that it matters that in anyone who's listening to this life, they get to Yosemite or to Shenandoah or to the rim of the Grand Canyon. Mm -hmm. And while it is the grandest canyon on earth, and that matters the most, it also equally matters whose hand you're holding. Right and who you are forming very human experiences and memories with. And that, if people do that, if they get up and go and see these places, which is their inheritance, they will then be able to protect them as we go forward, particularly when we enter into periods like now of more acquisitive times Mm -hmm. where people think, oh, we can open up for hunting or, oh, we can open up for mining or drilling or whatever. No. Hetch Hetchy ought to tell us. Right. And we've been able to keep these threats at bay, but it requires the continual vigilance of folks like us. We cannot always rely that there will be a Teddy Roosevelt or a Franklin Roosevelt or a Stuart Udall around to do that for us, that we've got to stand there and say, no, let's clean this place up. And you notice the incredible citizens' response during the shutdown of going there and taking out the trash and cleaning up the litter as if it was their own backyard. Because you know what, Brian? It is. Exactly. We went down to Everglades during the shutdown to, to kind of pitch in and help out as well. So we, uh, we were there just a few weeks ago. And I, just as you mentioned, it's, it's our democratic inheritance. It's our familial yep. inheritance. And I can't think exactly. of a better note to end on. Ken Burns, thank you so much. 10 years on, the National Parks, America's Best Idea. Check out your PBS listings and streaming services. It's worth checking out again. Ken, we can't wait for your future projects, and we can't thank you enough for your time today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, Ken. Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. You may find links to resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes on our website, everybody'snationalparks.com. While there, consider clicking on support our show. 
You may find the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. If you like the show, write a review, give us a five-star rating, and please tell your friends. You may also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or send us your comments at everybody'snationalparks.com forward slash contact. We love to hear from you from the parks you are visiting, so please tag us at hashtag everybody's national parks. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Bye for now.